Good morning, friends, and welcome to New Life Dresher's virtual service. My name is Anthony Gamage. I'm the lead pastor here at New Life. And after praying for the McMullins, I had to do a quick wardrobe change, uh, but it's good to be with you here. Nevertheless, uh, we at New Life exist to know Jesus and to make him known. And if uh, you want to connect with us, uh, particularly uh, as we begin to ramp up in-person meeting uh, and you're new here and you want to know what's happening, please uh, text connect to the number on the bottom of your screen there. I would love to reach out to you and give you more information. Well, this morning we're going to continue working through the book of 2 Corinthians. Uh, We're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, verse 7, and we're going to go through till 4, verse 6. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open in them there. And as we begin, there's one term in particular that I want to bring to your attention because it really is a focal point of this entire passage. It's said upwards of 13 times. It's referred to in multiple different ways. It's used as a verb and a noun, and, and it's this term, glory. Uh, Now, if you look at the Greek uh, root of this term glory, it basically means to think, and then it's conveying the sense of praise and honor uh, or the reason for legitimate pride. So if you think about it, it's to think of something uh, as glorious, as having reason for legitimate pride or being worthy of being thought of in an honoring way. Uh, A diamond, for instance, has this intrinsic glory in it, uh, of its clarity and its color and so on and so forth. But but I just say that because sometimes we will use a term like glory and we don't really know what it's talking about. But uh, I like that phrase, a legitimate basis for pride, right? And so as we think about things in our culture that we glorify, I would argue one of the things that we glorify the most in our culture are professional athletes. Now, we might not all feel that way, but... Um, We can't deny it because uh, we give billions of dollars to uh, athletes every year. We have worship services, if you will, every Sunday ascribing glory uh, on football fields across the NFL. When we uh, yell and scream uh, for our favorite team, we wear their images or their names on our back. And so we love glorifying athletes. And by the way, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. But but as it comes to pro athletes, there was a season in my life where uh, I was well on my way to becoming a pro sports chaplain. And uh, in 2008, I was uh, really uh, training to be a pro sports chaplain. Uh, and as I was shadowing the chaplain of the New York football giants, I know some of your stomachs just turned being in Philadelphia, but bear with me. Uh, the year that I got a chance to really just be in the locker room and get to know coaches and players was right after they won the Super Bowl in 2008 when they defeated the undefeated New England Patriots. Now we're tracking back with me because most, minus probably the four people who are watching, uh, always love to see the Patriots get beat. But, um, you know, it, it was one of the most glorious Super Bowl victories of all time because uh, they defeated the evil undefeated empire, right? I'm I'm being hard on the Patriots. I'm sorry. That just means I'm jealous. Um, Anyway, uh, so part of this one day in particular that I remember was the first day I was able to go into the locker room and I was meeting players. I was starstruck. Uh, And then after the players cleared out, seven coaches, you know, various positions and whatnot, uh, came in and, and essentially set up for a Bible study. So I sat in on the first coaches Bible study of the year. And my buddy George, who was and still is the chaplain, uh, essentially said, hey, guys, let's just go around the room and share what's, you know, how you're doing coming into this year. And I was expecting to hear, man, that Super Bowl was so great, you know, and and have them come riding high off of the glory of having defeated the New England Patriots. But what I heard very quickly is that that glory had soon faded almost immediately after that game. 
In fact, many of the guys articulated how, you know, maybe they took a couple days off, but they immediately went back to the grind of, of saying, okay, now we got to do it again. I saw these men who were jovial and, and kind of excited coming into that Bible study to, when they were sharing how they were really doing, they began to deflate. And one thing came to mind in that moment, and it was this idea that glory fades. Now, friends, let me, let me just say this. Um, when we glorify something else, it's not inherently wrong, right? I think there is reason to have legitimate pride uh, or, or honor or to glorify a moment for many different reasons, in part because God created all things and he created it good. And so there's, there's, there's glory that got all over everything that he created. And so we see glimpses of that when um, there are huge victories for our teams. We see glimpses of that when we uh, are able to make a career move because of our hard work or talents that the Lord gave us. There's glorious moments when a child is born. There's glorious moments at a wedding. You know, vacations are glorious, aren't they? But let's just think about vacation for a moment. The glory of a vacation fades, right? I, 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 every vacation I go into, just excited about it, and it's going to be peaceful and restful and so on and so forth. And then it ends, and that glory of that vacation just poof, disappears. Part of a reality of living in a fallen world and really putting our hope in things that um, aren't God is that glory will inevitably fade. Well, this morning we're looking, we're continuing to look at the cross-shaped life. And, and really in this section, it's painting this picture um, of how followers of Jesus can, can be in a place of glory, but only by being first brought low because as we are brought low, we actually lift high the most glorious there is, and that's the God of the universe. So let's first talk about what's going on in the passage that we're getting ready to jump into, just so you understand there's a lot of language that you might be like, what is he talking about? Going back to what Josiah preached on last week in chapter 3, verse 6, Paul basically says, God has made us, him and those he's doing ministry with, sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. So that gives us a picture of some of what's going on here. First of all, there are these super apostles, we've called them. These are uh, people who are also doing ministry, claiming to be at the same level of authority as Paul is. And they're saying, hey, um, uh, there's this old covenant, right? The Mosaic law is the old covenant uh, that we think is the best thing and it's the most glorious and you need to follow it and you need to ignore Paul. And they are attacking Paul's ministry and they're saying Paul's not quite sufficient. But what Paul is saying is, is no, those apostles are ministers of an old covenant that's dying and fading in glory, and I have been made a minister of a new covenant. So when I say new covenant, I'm simply, most simply, talking about the person of Jesus Christ, right? Uh, the, the, um, at the Last Supper, where Jesus holds up the cup, right? He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And so what Paul is saying is, is I am a minister of the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, what he uses to basically combat these super apostles who are giving lift to some aspect of the Old Covenant, we don't know what aspect, he's not clear here, but he's essentially giving a commentary uh, on Exodus 32 to 34. And let me just tell you real quick what was happening back there. That was when uh, God gave Moses the two stone tablets, the Ten Commandments, and and Moses came down, and, and the Israelites, God's people, didn't wait for Moses to come down with the Ten Commandments. They're like, eh, we're a little nervous. We want our own God. So they throw a block party. They make their own God, this golden calf. Moses gets angry, breaks the two tablets, and then goes back up on the mountain to get two new ones. All right? 
And here's what happens in Exodus 34. Basically, God covers Moses' eyes as he taps out the Ten Commandments. He says, Moses, I'm getting ready to walk past you, and if you were to really look at me, you would die. So he hides him in the cleft of a rock. He goes past him. He carves out the Ten Commandments. He gives it to Moses, and Moses comes down. But what we find out in Exodus 34 is even that hiding from God and his glory passing before him, a little bit of God's glory got on Moses to the point where Moses was literally glowing when he came off the mountain. Have you ever seen a glowing dude? Me neither. I guess it was probably a crazy moment for the Israelites. But that's how glorious God was at him just walking right past Moses with Moses not even looking at him. Dude was glowing to the point where he had to put a veil over his face so he wouldn't shine too brightly for the people. And so this passage is really Paul using as a commentary that passage in Exodus 32 to 34 to defend his ministry. And so that's where we're going to start. Let me pray for us as we jump in. Lord, thanks for this morning. And uh, I do realize, let me stop for just a second and pray here on Father's Day for the dads in the room. Lord, what a, what a high calling it is to be uh, a father. Um, Lord, what a joy it is. Uh, but Lord, it is also a great challenge. In part, that challenge comes from us recognizing that we fail often. And so, Lord, um, would you meet us in those moments of success or failure? Uh, Lord, where we experience failure, help us to look to your faithfulness and your grace and your mercy towards us and cause us to be faithful to you. And Lord, I also recognize that on Father's Day, it can be a painful day for those who um, this reminds them of certain things. Maybe it's not being able to be a father for whatever reason you've ordained. Lord, maybe it's the loss of a father. Uh, Lord, maybe it's um, an estranged relationship with a son. I don't know what that might be, but you tell us that you're the God of all comfort and the Father of mercies. And I just pray that you will meet us if we find ourselves there today. And Lord, I pray for all of us that uh, on Father's Day, we will lift our eyes to uh, our Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, you who are perfect and ultimately faithful and gracious and merciful to us. And uh, yeah, we, we just pray that uh, we will focus our eyes on you today as well. And Lord, as we walk into this text, I pray that you will be merciful and gracious to us. Help us to hear what we need to hear. Uh, Holy Spirit, I pray that you will speak in and through me uh, as I preach, protect my words. Uh, but Lord, just guide us. Thanks for this time. Thanks for your word in your name. Amen. Well, let's start off looking at this idea of faded glory. Chapter 3, verses 7 to 11. It says this, Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters of stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. All right, so here's what he's saying. First off, uh, there's a couple phrases I want to unpack. The first is when he says in verse 7, if the ministry of death. Now, obviously, as you listened, he was talking about the Ten Commandments. He calls that the ministry of death. It's pretty ominous, right? It kind of sounds like a WWE tag team, not um, something that you would read in the Bible. And in verse 9, he calls it the, the ministry of condemnation. Well, what's going on here? I thought, Anthony, you told us in Deuteronomy that the law was good. Well, it is. There was nothing wrong with the law. In fact, in verse 7, it tells us that, um, they, that the law had glory. He said they couldn't 
gaze at Moses' face because of the glory which was to be brought to an end. And so there was glory going on there. Paul comments on this in Romans chapter 7. In verse 10, he says, The very commandment that promised life proved death to me. So there it is. There's the ministry of death thing again. But then at the end in verse 12, he says, The law, so the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. What on earth is he saying here? Is the law good or is it bad? Well, here's what he's saying. He is saying the law is good, right? It represents the character of God himself, as we talked about when we walked through Deuteronomy. But the law, if it is depended on in the wrong way, can only bring information and death. Let me tell you a story. uh, Well, let me just tell you something about myself uh, that kind of can uh, paint a picture of what this means. I have a problem coming to complete stops at stop signs. And I only know that because I've been pulled over multiple times for rolling through a stop sign. And oftentimes I'm asked, hey, did you see the stop sign? I did see the stop sign. Here's what the stop sign could do. It informed me of what the law was, right? Here is the standard of the law that you must live according to. But then when I roll through that stop sign, it then became condemnation to me. It could not produce obedience to me. In fact, it stood over me as a violation of the law, right? And so I can't rely on that stop sign to give me life, to change something in me that can produce obedience, right? It can just inform me and stand over me in condemnation. What the law does, God's law does, is it, yes, tells us the character of God, but it reminds us that we constantly fall short. But then in verse 8, we see Paul saying, hey, that was the ministry of death, but God's given us the ministry of the Spirit. You see that? Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? So he's saying, if the Old Testament law, the Old Covenant law had glory, how much more will the permanent law of the New Covenant of Jesus Christ have in the ministry of the Spirit? Here's what he's talking about with the ministry of the Spirit. In Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel prophesies about this new covenant Holy Spirit, which God will one day give through the person of Jesus Christ. Here's what it says in verse 26. And by the way, this is in the midst of God's people having known the law and broken it time and time again. And now they're in captivity as a result. Ezekiel 36. God tells his people, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. A stop sign is not going to perform heart surgery on us. But God is saying in the new covenant of Jesus Christ, that's what he does. And then he gives us his spirit to enable us to obey his law. And so... In this concept of faded glory, verse 11 tells us that this ministry of the Spirit, this ministry of um, not condemnation, but it says righteousness, is one that will not fade. In verse 11, it says, much more will what be permanent have glory. Here's the permanent part, and this is how it pertains to the person of Jesus Christ. You see, when we think about Jesus, oftentimes we'll think of the cross, or we might think of the resurrection. But the reason this new covenant in Jesus is far more permanent is because it points us to not just the cross and not just the resurrection, but also his perfect sinless life, his righteous or right life, 
Yes, his death on the cross that paid the penalty for our sins. Yes, his victory over sin and death in the resurrection that can't hold us and and offers us eternal life. And it points us to uh, the new covenant of Jesus Christ who when he ascended to be with the Father sent this Holy Spirit that will enable us to keep God's law. And so Jesus Christ meets all of those criteria. He gives us his right life, his righteousness. He gives us the payment of that penalty of our rebellion. He gives us new life in the resurrection. And he gives us the ability to follow his law by his grace through the power of the Holy Spirit. The bottom line is, is God saying, don't go to the default of works. That is a glory that will fade and actually bring death. Move towards a glory that is permanent. So let's talk about uh, Maroon 5 and Johann Pachelbel for just a second, right? When we talk about what's fading and what's permanent. Here's what I mean by that. A little while ago, uh, I went downstairs and my kids are sitting there and they're listening to uh, the song Memories by Maroon 5. Now, if you've ever heard it, it's like... I'm not a good singer, so just bear with me. There's nobody in the room, so I can pretend that I can embarrass myself and it has no repercussions. But as I'm listening to it, I go, kids, that's great. What a catchy song. You know somebody wrote that song before they did, right? They're like, no, they didn't. What are you talking about? And so I pulled up Johann Pachelbel's Canon in D, right? Because that's exactly what that song is. And I play it, and I'm like, whoa. Wow, that's crazy. Johann Pachelbel, Baroque composer. Uh, and so they listen to it. And they're like, that's great. I was like, let's just keep listening to this. And they're like, no, we'd rather go back to Maroon 5, right? <laughs> now, everything in me is like, no, like this pop music's just going to fade. Pachelbel's been around for hundreds of years. Let's go and listen to him. Now, I'm kidding. I didn't really say that. I actually kind of like the song Memories. It's catchy, but, but you get my point. What Paul is saying in Corinth is he's saying, don't listen to the pop music of the super apostles that's going to fade. Listen to that which will be permanent glory in the person of Jesus Christ. N.T. Wright says this, Paul is challenging them to look for the real glory even though at the moment they can't see it. To listen for the hidden power of the gospel music even though at that moment their heads are filled with the transient power of what their culture gives them. And so just a quick question. Where might you be living for or giving your life to a glory that may be fading? What part of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, his righteousness, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, what part of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ offers a more permanent glory? Well, let's keep going. Second point we want to look at is transforming glory. Pick back up with me in verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who had put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. All right, so let's talk about this transforming glory. And what Paul is doing is he's pointing God's people to transforming glory by making two contrasts. The first contrast 
uh, is really in verse 12, uh, where he basically says, we have a hope and we are very bold, not like Moses. He's saying Moses had to put a veil over his face. And he gives us commentary that we don't necessarily see in Exodus, but he's saying part of the reason Moses veiled his face is he didn't want other people to see the fading glory of the old covenant. But what Paul says is, is he goes, we're bold. <laughs> we're bold. Why? Because we have hope that the glory we have placed our faith in is unfading. And that's important because Paul isn't necessarily, he's known for his boldness in some ways, but he wasn't the best orator, the best speaker. And then sometimes people said, hey, Paul, why so bold talking about Jesus Christ? And he's saying, I'm bold because I know the hope of the unfading glory of Jesus Christ that I have. The second thing he talks about is the lifting of a veil. The lifting of a veil. This is the second contrast. He talks about um, those who were engaged with the old covenant. Their minds were hardened. It says, for to this day, a veil remains unlifted, right? Because it re remains over the law. So again, he's pointing back to uh, this picture that uh, the law can't change the human heart. There's a veil there that they can't see. Verse 15 says, uh, or I'm sorry, a veil over the law. And then 15 says, there's a veil over the human heart. What he means by that is anyone who can't see Jesus Christ even while it's being preached to them, it's a person who is just unable to see or even imagine that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. But Paul's defense here in this contrast, because he goes on, and we'll talk about this in a second, he says, but the veil has been removed. But what Paul is saying here is these super apostles are accusing me of not being any good because people aren't coming to faith. And what I'm telling them is I'm not the problem. The problem is the veil that lies over the law that they're going to, right? The works that they're going to to try to find life or their own stubbornness and unwilling to see that they need a savior. But here's the contrast. In verse 16, you see the solution. He says, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. He's saying it's not rocket science. These super apostles are giving you all these burdensome laws and, and things like that. He's saying, this is not rocket science. He's talking about what we would call repentance. It's when you're facing a fading glory and you turn towards the true glory in the person of Jesus Christ. He says, that's all it is to come to faith in Christ, to find that true glory, is to turn to the Lord. And when that happens, the veil that was over Moses' face, the veil that's over the law, the veil that hardens us to Jesus is gone. And when that happens, he says in 18, with unveiled face, as we behold the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into that very same image of Jesus Christ. Being transformed is the verb metamorpho, right? Metamorphosis, as you hear it. He's saying simply looking at him changes us. The verb tense here is essentially saying it's present and it's ongoing. It is a continual change as we're changed from one degree of glory to another. That means it's progressive. If you've ever met a Christian, the reason people are like, oh, Christians, pff, I dismiss them because they sin. Well, right, because this whole transformation thing takes a lifetime. We are being transformed over the course of our lives from one degree of glory to another. And this transformation is one of a moral transformation making us look in character and in life more and more like the person of Jesus Christ. The glory of Christ transforms us. Now, friends, do you see the difference right here between the Christian faith and any other faith or ideology that's out there? 
that transformation that happens in us, that glory that we begin to take on is not something that we achieve. It is simply something that we receive. We are just staring at Jesus. Of course, there's action, right? Don't hear what I'm not saying. But, but, but as we stare at the person of Jesus Christ, behold his glory, rest on him in faith, he is changing us. It is a received transformation versus the burnout and the neuroses that is in our culture today that has to achieve our identity, that has to achieve our righteousness, that has to achieve, I don't know, achieve everything. That's why we are anxious and and, in a mess because we spend our lives trying to achieve. But but God is saying, rest and simply behold the beauty of Jesus Christ. This, This is why I love Matthew 11, 29, where Jesus himself says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest in your souls. Friends, whatever we find most glorious, we behold, and I believe we are transformed to look like. I don't think that's a stretch. Think about your favorite athlete, right, if you're an athlete. You know, for me, I watched Michael Jordan, and and I was transformed into Michael Jordan. Now, not in my ability to play, but maybe my shoes and my sticking my tongue out of my mouth as I try to drive the lane. Think about your, if you're a musician, you behold that which you're in awe of in the music world, and you take on those characteristics. If you're in leadership or business, you behold that ideology, that platform. You begin quoting the one-liners of those who you love and you think are full of glory and great, and you begin to be transformed into them. I'm not going to take this too far. But as I look at the church today, and I mean Big C Church, and I think I mean some Little C New Life Dresher Church, I'm getting a little nervous. And I'm a little nervous at my own heart as I say this. But one of the characteristics that I see that is loudest in our culture right now is anger. And the church has not escaped it. Now, is there such a thing as righteous anger? Sure. Be angry and don't sin. Most of the anger I see is sin. Because it, it yields quarreling, right? Galatians 5 condemns that. It says, in fact, if you're a rabble rouser and a quarreler, you need to evaluate what, who, who you're following because it's not Jesus. James talks about uh, why do quarrels erupt because it's our passions at war within ourselves. So I don't know what we're looking at. And I say we because I am guilty of this too. I've seen more anger in me in the last three months than I have in so long. But as we read Jesus' words of who he says he is, this passage in Matthew chapter 11 is the only time Jesus talks directly about the nature of his heart. And the nature of Jesus' heart is gentle and lowly. I don't know what we're looking at to get so angry and quarrelsome, but it's not Jesus. You may say, Anthony, he, he divided families and he flipped tables. Sure, he's Jesus. But most everything he says is, love your enemy. Have the same mind in you among each other that you have in Christ Jesus, that of humility. And when anger comes in, he says, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. So friends, I don't know what it means. But we are not being transformed by Christ if we are feeding ourselves in our world, in our church, with anger. We need to stare at the transforming power of the gospel and a glory that is received and being with our gentle and lowly Savior. Last point, 
Grind for glory. I'm going a little long. I'm going to hustle through this last one. Four, one to six. Pick back up with me. It says there, here. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of of Jesus Christ. And so grind for glory. What on earth are you talking about? Well, first of all, grind, right? That's what all the kids say, right? Uh, maybe they don't, but I hear my son talking about it a lot on Fortnite. Uh, Man, that dude was grinding. So it just means they are working hard against a lot of opposition. And I'm totally stealing this bullet point from a guy named Erwin Ince. Erwin Ince is an African-American PCA pastor down in D.C. who we invited in about a year ago to train our staff and some of our leaders in uh, ethnic uh, reconciliation and, and what have you. And so I heard him preach on this, and I heard his bullet points, and I loved it, and I'm totally going to heist it. Thanks, Erwin, for that. Um, but, but grind for glory. You know, verse 1, you'll see it there. He says, therefore. So what that connecting word is doing is Paul is saying, hey, in light of the fact that the glory we pursue isn't fading, in light of the fact that the, the glory of Jesus Christ is in us, we are being transformed. He's saying we do not lose heart. And why is that important that he says we do not lose heart? Well, as we've talked about, he is under constant attack. The church keeps poking him in the eye. These super apostles keep uh, gnawing away at his ministry. It would be easy for this brother to lose heart. Have you ever lost heart? Have you felt like, I just want to give in? Is it given up on the faith? Because you see the mess of your own heart? You see the mess of the world around you? Have you ever wanted to give up on the church because of the hypocrisy that you see? For my friends of color, you know, has this season just made you want to throw up your hands and give up because of the response that you keep hearing that is anti-gospel, anti-God, anti-biblical? Do you want to just give up? Or what about those who are uh, battling to hold on to the heart (laughs) of your children who have rejected the gospel? Yeah, it's easy to lose heart, isn't it? But what Paul is saying here is keep grinding for glory. Verses 1 and 2, he basically says, grind by grace. By the mercy of God, Paul says, we keep going and we don't lose heart. Paul has not forgotten that before Jesus Christ met him on the road to Damascus, he was a Christian persecutor and killer. That's where he was going on the road to Damascus. By God's mercy, he made him a minister of this new covenant. He goes on and he says in verse 2, we don't tamper with God's word. That term tamper with God's word is used uh, to talk about when wine merchants dilute their wine. He's saying, we don't water down our gospel. We're bold with it. We keep grinding because we know that the gospel can transform murderers like me and he can do with whatever he wants, right? He says, grind against darkness. Verses 3 and 4, 4 in particular, he says, uh, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. Friends, Paul is saying, I keep grinding even though I know 
that there is an enemy who is continually trying to prevent the glory and the light of the gospel from going forward. I can't control him. I can't defeat him, but I know the one who can. That's why a big part of the grind of glory is prayer, calling out to the one who has and will ultimately defeat the God of this world. And then finally, verses 5 and 6, he talks about the nature of the grind. He basically tells us this grind is not about me. It's not about who I am. In fact, it's for Jesus. So the last thing he says is grind for Jesus in 5 and 6. He says what we proclaim, verse 5, is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. It has nothing to do with Paul. It has nothing to do with Anthony. It has nothing to do with whoever's listening to this, the ministry of the gospel. It has everything to do to just proclaiming the glory of Jesus Christ. And our posture as we do it is that of servants. Did you read that? He says, we proclaim the glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Maybe then let me end with this. That last term, and maybe this is where we'll pick up next time because I think it rolls over perfectly. He says, let light shine out of darkness. Or the one who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's basically saying, hey, (laughs) we're not exhausted in this because we are constantly being filled by this light of the glory of God so that it just simply oozes out of us what we'll see cracked pots. And that glory goes to the rest of the world around us. It literally has nothing to do with us other than the fact that God chooses to use us. And so, friends, grind for that glory of God. Let me end with this. That Bible study got really kind of dark and sad and depressing. But you know what turned it? The defensive coordinator of that team says, you know what? Yeah, this is going to be a grind. This is going to be hard. That glory faded. But you know what? Jesus is going to meet us here. And you know what? He's called me as the defensive coordinator of this team to serve these players. And that's what we're going to do. And we just spent time studying God's word, studying that glory, time in prayer, crying out to the one who will help them keep grinding throughout the season in the name of Jesus. And friends, that's what it's all about. Pointing yourself and others continually to the unfading true glory of the triune God, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thanks for this time. Thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for your glory. Thank you that the glory, if we put our faith in Jesus Christ, is permanent. It doesn't fade. Thank you that even when we don't see it, as we gaze at you, you are transforming us to look like you. And Lord, I pray that you will help us to grind, to labor in your name by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we will not be exhausted, that we will not lose heart, but that we will press on in hope. Thank you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen.